I don't think Australians like people who are full of pride uh, and who show off all the time. We don't like ostentatious shows of wealth. Uh, when the list of the richest hundred come out each year in the uh, Business Review Weekly, um, Australians don't tend to pore over it with great admiration. Uh, often we feel sorry uh, for the very rich, uh, as their riches don't tend to lead them to happiness. Uh, some Australians may share the political views of Donald Trump, but few admire his boasting, not only because it is largely unwarranted, but also because we don't like boasting. We've just elected a new Prime Minister in part because he's a good bloke, modest and from a modest background in social housing just up the road in Bridge Road in part of the parish of Glebe, if you're interested. I think it is fine to take pride in what we genuinely and honestly achieve. Our families, our businesses, our friends, our crafts, our creations, our church. Not pride that leads to boasting, or that does not recognise that for many life is much harder and for whom the dice do not fall so well. I'm, I'm thinking of a quiet sense of satisfaction that is not marred by false humility. But pride is a constant threat. Still the most popular song at funerals is I did it my way. And for anyone who thinks that there might be life after death, I always hope that God doesn't turn around and say, well, you can get through, God, uh, get through death on your own. Uh, pride is the unwarranted or inordinate opinion of one owns, uh, one's own self-worth uh, or importance or superiority. And God hates it. There is pride in defining one's own sense of reality in the face of what most of us would consider self-evident truths. Pride in thinking that the war in Ukraine is justified. Pride in thinking that the US election was stolen. And pride in regularly telling lies as if there are no consequences. There is pride in making up one's own religion and turning down God's offer of salvation. And it is God's judgment on the pride of Belshazzar and his rejection of God's offer of salvation that made Belshazzar crap his pants with fear at that judgment. Uh, if you think that is inappropriate for me to resort to the crude vernacular, that's okay. Uh, you're in very good company. Uh, that is what our translators think. They have censored some of the most vivid imagery in this passage to make it a bit more suitable for polite company. Our translation says, his face, that is the face of the Babylonian king Belshazzar, turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking, uh, as ours might if we saw the writing on the wall. Verse 6 says in the original Aramaic that the knots or joints of the loins of King Belshazzar became loosened, which is another way of saying that he lost control of his bowel. In other words, Belshazzar shat himself with fear. 
So I'm not being unduly crude. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. King Belshazzar crapped his pants because he saw the writing on the wall. Uh, that expression gets used quite a lot nowadays. The voters of Australia have seen the writing on the wall about climate change and want to do more about it than uh, some of our major parties do. The knots of the loins of some of our politicians have been loosened at the prospect of losing a few votes in coal areas or political funding from oil and gas companies. Perhaps the loins of some of our politicians will be loosened at the prospect of the new political landscape. Time will tell. Anyway, the writing was on the wall for Belshazzar because of his pride and contempt for God. The writing was on the wall for the second century Jews who first heard the prophecy when they thought about the pride and idolatry of their Greek overlords and perhaps also their own pride and idolatry if they did not stick close to God. And Jesus says that the writing is on the wall for us if we continue in our pride and contempt for God and do not prepare for the return of his son. Well, this is not a message that the world really wants to hear. The Jesus who stands behind the story today says, look up, there is a wall right in front of you. Read the words written there. And then he says, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. He will come like a thief in the night. So repent and turn away from your pride and idolatry. For as sure as the Persians destroyed Belshazzar for his pride and idolatry, and the Lord had caused the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem for the pride of the people of Israel, so too will he destroy us if we are proud and dishonour and reject him. The story today makes more sense if we see it as the second half of a tale about pride and humility. We saw the first half last week. It's outlined in the story today so that we don't miss the connection. The great and powerful king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream about a tall and powerful tree that reached to the sky and provided shelter and abundance for all who could shelter under it. Nebuchadnezzar was told that this tree represents him and his empire. A voice from heaven said that the tree will be cut down because Nebuchadnezzar's heart became arrogant and hardened with pride. He would be driven away and would eat grass with the animals and take on the appearance of wild animals and birds. And we're told this happened. After a long period, Nebuchadnezzar looked up to heaven and acknowledged the God of Daniel, the God Most High. He praised this God and his empire was restored because he put aside his pride and arrogance and humbled himself before God. So when we put these two stories together, we do see repentance turning away from pride and idolatry and turning to God. We see that in the first story about Nebuchadnezzar, but not the second. 
we see that with repentance comes God restoring Nebuchadnezzar to his right mind and his position as king. But Belshazzar did not learn from this and he and his empire was destroyed. And history tells us that this was in 539 BC. Our story today is much quicker and the story only lasts for 24 hours. All we see is this, these, this, this last few hours of Belshazzar. If you're struggling with the names, that's quite understandable. In chapter 1, Daniel is given the Babylonian name Belshazzar. Now we meet a Babylonian king called Belshazzar. To avoid confusion, I will refer to Daniel by his Jewish name, Daniel. The timing's important because if the very night Daniel interpreted the dream for Belshazzar, Darius the Mede was able to kill Belshazzar and capture the mighty city of Babylon. This meant that while Belshazzar threw his big party and caroused with his wives and concubines and a thousand nobles, the enemy was outside, on the doorstep. Now, this wasn't like the secret mission to kill Osama bin Laden. Belshazzar and his mighty capital were surrounded by an army that could and would destroy the mighty Babylonian empire. And Belshazzar had a big party. What, what was he thinking? Obviously, astonishing pride and hubris. I'm the son of the mighty Nebuchadnezzar. We are a mighty empire. No one can touch us. The history books say that Babylon was captured by stealth without great bloodshed. But the Babylonians would have known that Darius's army was coming and was literally on the doorstep. But let's party like there's no tomorrow. I'll mention an interesting detail here. For many years, historians and biblical scholars have uh, poo-pooed the historical context of this story. They said the detailed records of the Babylonians showed Nebuchadnezzar was succeeded by his son, Nabonidus, and there was no record of a kingship of Belshazzar. And the Cyrus Cylinder records that Babylon fell when Nabonidus was king. But then the archaeologists found some ancient records and said that, that said that Nabonidus spent a long period of time in Arabia, perhaps on a religious retreat, and his son Nebuchadnezzar's grandson governed in his place. And that grandson is Belshazzar. It was quite common for a grandson to be referred to as a son. Jesus was referred to as the son of David, even though they lived a thousand years apart. So archaeology again proves the accuracy of some historical details in the Bible. Back to the story. Uh, we, shouldn't be, we should be shocked by what Belshazzar did. Nebuchadnezzar had captured Jerusalem in 586 BC and destroyed the temple and taken all the gold implements and decorations to Babylon, but he had not desecrated them. That act of vanity and contempt fell to Belshazzar. The Babylonians were famous for their wild parties and orgies, and while Darius and his army were outside, Belshazzar threw a mighty party. Whether he used the gold goblets out of ignorance of their providence or as a deliberate act of blasphemy against Israel's God, we're not told. 
but the implication is the latter. And while this grand party was raging, we're told suddenly the fingers of a hand, a human hand, appeared and wrote on the plaster wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. Not the full arm attached to a, a human body, but just the hand. Near the lampshade, so that the message was illuminated for all to see. And the king was frightened and his knees knocked, if you know what I mean. The king became even more frightened when the wise men of Babylon could not read or interpret the message. Then we're told the queen reminded him of the Jew, Daniel, who appeared to have a, uh, a God-given ability to interpret dreams and signs and riddles. This was probably the queen mother who would have had a greater position of influence than Belshazzar's many wives and concubines. By this stage, Daniel would have been in retirement, well into his 80s. Belshazzar asked him to read the writing and tell him what it meant. As a reward, he offered that Daniel be clothed in purple, which was the regal uh, colour, and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he would be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Why only the third highest? Well, another lovely historical detail. At this time, Nabonidus was still king. Belshazzar was treated as king in his father's absence in Arabia, so the next place in line was third, and that would be given to Daniel. But Daniel acts like Jesus would. He turns down the offers of human power, prestige and wealth. That, that's not why he came. That is not what he values. Daniel did not want to be bought or tainted by the power and wealth of Babylon. Daniel did not rush to read or interpret the writing. He wanted Belshazzar and, and, and everyone since then to know that this writing was in response to the pride and the arrogance of Belshazzar and his failure to honour the one true God. So Daniel recounted the story of Nebuchadnezzar and his dream, what happened when he ignored God and what happened later when he did acknowledge God as the God most high. And then Daniel came to the inscription, Mini, Mini, Tekel, Peris, from which we of course get the children's rhyme, Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch a tigger by the toe. We do. But let's not get distracted by that. Daniel both reads and interprets the inscription. Meaning, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought you to an end. Tekel, you have weighed, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. The Medes and Persians were two Iranian tribes. In time, the Persians would dominate, which is why we talk about the Persian Empire that emerged from these times. Now, I won't go into the linguistic background of the words. There's some interesting plays on words, but we don't need to be detained by that. These were words that were spoken to Belshazzar, but they're also words for us meaning the days of our lives 
have been numbered. Our lives are in God's hands. We rely on him for each breath. And all that we have comes from him. Tekel, God will judge each one of us. We know there will be a day of judgment. Perez, we are not told of our kingdom will be divided and distributed between Medes and Persians, but as Jesus says in Matthew 12, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account of the day of judgment for every empty word that they've spoken, every prideful word. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. The words in the writing on the wall are as much words for us today as they were for Belshazzar and his party. But first we should recognise that this was initially a message for a Babylonian king from the God of Israel. And that is worth noting as we sit here in Australia. God does not just care about his chosen people, Israel. He cares about the salvation of the Babylonian king and he cares about the people of all nations. This is the message we hear on the lips of Jesus in Matthew 28. He said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them that all nations are to obey everything I have commanded you. So we should not think the judgment in the words on the wall and the destruction of Belshazzar and Babylon were a bit hard on them. His grandfather Nebuchadnezzar was arrogant and proud, but he came to praise God. For Belshazzar, it's all over in 24 hours. The words of the Queen show that the story of Nebuchadnezzar was well known. The consequences of pride and ignoring God were there for Belshazzar to see, as clear as the writing on the wall. He had no excuse. And judgment follows sin as night follows day. The background of this story is historical. I've spoken as if this story of Daniel is historical, uh, that, that there was a hand that wrote on the wall. And, and that may have been the case. But as with the previous stories we've seen in the book of Daniel, the humour in a proud king crapping in his pants suggests it's better to read this as a satirical judgment on the pride and hubris of the Greek rulers of Israel at the time that this was written. For the writing on the wall was there for them all. Under Alexander the Great, the Greeks had a mightier empire than the Babylonians and the Persians, but like all human empires built on greed, vanity and idolatry, it would fall. So the story was initially an encouragement to the Jews who first heard it in the second century BC, when people like the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes not only desecrated the temple implements, but the whole temple in Jerusalem. When he captured Jerusalem in 167 BC, he desecrated the temple by worshipping Zeus right in the middle. And this became known as the abomination of desolation referred to in Matthew 24, 15. And the writing was also on the wall for the Jews who first heard this, perhaps more as a warning than as a judgment of imminent destruction. 
For God's prophets had been telling the Jews since Moses to live rightly before God and give him the honour he deserved, to avoid sin and to live in obedience to him. And when they didn't, first they had been ripped apart by civil war and then conquered by Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians and Greeks. And God would not protect them because they had brought destruction on themselves by pride and idolatry, following the gods of the people around them and thinking that God would protect them no matter what they did. Much as today, many people make up their own gods and think that God will protect them because they're nice people. Daniel spoke as a prophet, so did Jesus. Daniel's words sound like those of a prophet. Repent and give God the honour and that is his due. And that, of course, is the message of Jesus. In Mark 1.14, the Gospel writer summarises all of Jesus' teaching as repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's outside. It's on the doorstep. Be ready because it's going to sweep over you and wash the proud away and leave only the humble and repentant. Our pride and self-reliance are our enemies, as they were for the people Daniel encountered and those that Jesus encountered. There is but one God who is to be honoured and obeyed, and the time may be short, perhaps today. We will be judged, and in one important, but, but, but in one important way, Jesus' message goes further than the prophecy of Daniel. For although we will have to give an account of our lives, our futures are not dependent on our actions and words alone. We may tremble at the thought that, there will, that we will be judged by the one holy and all-knowing God. But with the cross, more words were written. And those words are, I love you. There are words of judgment for us, but also words of greater hope. The cross helps us to see God more clearly and more eagerly accept his offer of salvation. For he raised his son from death to life, and he will do that for us. It's God's love that gets us through the fiery furnace of a couple of weeks ago. It's his love that will get us through the lion's den when we get to that later in the year. And it is Jesus' love that helps us overcome our pride and our sense that we can do it on our own. But how can our pride and arrogance survive in the face, sorry, for how can our pride and arrogance survive in the face of his love for us poured out on the cross? The best way to avoid pride is to follow Jesus in all his love and humility. It is to follow Jesus. That will save us from what happened to Belshazzar, save us from what has happened to everyone since then. And the writing on the wall from Jesus is not repent and believe and I will love you. It's I love you, 
So repent and believe. Amen. Well, it's cold in here. Please stand. Bit of exercise and let's sing.